0: Welcome to Creekside. I'm blessed to be with you all. My name is Chris Thompson. I'm the campus pastor here at the Creekside campus. And i um, looking forward to uh, getting to dig in on our very final I am statement of Jesus from the book of John. Now, as uh, since we're concluding this series, I thought it'd be kind of fun to do a little pop quiz. How many of you guys remember all the I am statements that we've covered to date. Does anybody remember Easter morning? What did we we cover Easter morning? What was Matt's sermon on? The resurrection and the life. Excellent. The following week, he made everybody hungry. And what was that one? That was, I am the bread of life. The week after that was parents weekend. And that was, I am the, the, not the vine, which I heard, I think I'm hearing it. The way, the truth, and life. Wonderful. Good job. The week after that was, I am the blah, shepherd. There we go. Got it. Got it. Okay. I'm the shepherd. And then last week was, I am the vine. Good job. All right. We're capping it off with, I am the light this morning. And I'm really excited to, to be with you guys and to uh, kind of share through uh, some of these excellent passages. One of the things that is really interesting about the fact that what Christ is doing in this series or in these statements is that he is saying, I am, and he's utilizing his immediate context. He's using the immediate surroundings, even the near experiences of his listeners right then and there. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he then says, I'm the resurrection. When he feeds 5,000 people from just a few loaves of bread, he says, I am the bread of life. But obviously, he's doing more than just kind of speaking into the immediate context. He's saying, I am God. He's drawing on that well-known phrase of his Jewish hearers, the audience that he had in, in each of these different statements. They knew the history. They knew the story of when Moses encountered God in the wilderness. Moses, as a shepherd, sees this bush that is on fire yet not consumed. And as a result of that, obviously, turns away to see what in the world is this? And it's God manifesting, manifesting himself in what? Light, manifesting himself in this fire. God then calls Moses and he says, go to, to free my people to, to bring them up out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then Moses says, well, who should I say has sent me? And God says, you know it, I am. Tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. And so when Jesus says these words, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's, he's speaking into their immediate context, but he's also speaking to them as Jewish hearers, And he's using these words, I am, to identify himself as deity. He's identifying himself as God. I love the way that uh, as we get into the light of the world this morning, I love to think about the ways that God has crafted our universe in such a way that our physical realities parallel and communicate spiritual truths in so many different ways. You think about the physics of light and the realities of light. When I was a child, I used to have this recurring dream. And I, and I would say it was like every night. It was maybe like once a year, but it was often enough that I remember this dream happening very frequently throughout my childhood, in which I would, in the dream, I would go up to the doorway of a room, Oftentimes I didn't even know what the room was. It was uh, foreign to me. But it was dark inside. This just wall of blackness, darkness. And I'd go into the doorway and I'd try to flip on the light switch. And what happened next was so frightening because as I turned on the light switch, I could see that the lights were working. So there's power to the to the house or the room or whatever I'm in and the light bulb is not burnt out. I see that there's the filament has turned on but for whatever reason the room remained dark. The darkness overwhelmed the light to such an extent that I was terrified to walk into that space and especially a foreign space. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was doing And to think that that dream obviously defied reality in this darkness that overwhelmed the light. We think about light and we think about how light always overcomes darkness. I'm going to light this candle as a visual for us throughout the morning. Even this small candle pierces through the darkness, right? Obviously, it's not very effective right now because it's flooded with stage lighting and everything else that's around us in the room. But we know that light always overcomes darkness. If you were to stand in the doorway of your home at night with all the interior lights on and the exterior lights off, and you open that doorway, what happens? You know that light showers out into the darkness. The opposite does not happen. Darkness does not come into the light. Light always overcomes the darkness. John tells us that very same principle as it relates to light and to God. In John chapter 1, he says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Praise God for the fact that these physical truths, these physical realities, illustrate spiritual truths in our lives. Now, let's go ahead and move to John chapter 8, verse 12. We're going to see Jesus' statement about his his bold claim to be I am the light of the world. He says this. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, "I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." I think it's really valuable for at any time Jesus says something to consider what's going on around him. What is who is his audience? What are they thinking? Jesus never does anything arbitrarily or at random. He's always very intentional and very purposeful in everything he says and everything he does. So to recognize some of the immediate context of this statement, it's powerful. And it lends itself to understanding the greater picture of what he's, he's doing here. John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking in the temple in fact, he's speaking in the treasury of the temple. This artist's rendering of that first century temple, you can see in the top left corner, the treasury, often called also the court of women. It was a very public space in which they, it alla- the, uh, the Jews allowed everyone in this area. I mean, it's the treasury, right? So they're gonna allow anybody to be able to put money in their coffers, right? But they were allowed men and women Jews and Gentiles alike in this area. So whenever Jesus is speaking, he has a very all-inclusive crowd at his disposal. It's a very public place for him to be able to speak into their lives. Additionally, if you notice these giant menorahs in this artist's rendering, the reality is, is when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it may be very possible that he was speaking within very close proximity to one of these menorahs. According to scholars, they say that Herod constructed menorahs in this, this new temple, this first century temple, that may have been as high as 70 feet high. These are some massive lampstands. So these, these menorahs, obviously they gave off light throughout the whole temple um, courtyard area. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying that in the very presence of these menorahs that emanated this light. But even more so than that, let, let's go back to what was the symbol of the menorah to a Jew itself. So he's, uh, in Exodus, God in, gave instructions to Moses about how a menorah was to be crafted. There were six branches to, to the menorah and a centerpiece. So seven total lamps in all. This was to be constructed and it was placed in the tabernacle. It was a symbol of God. It was a symbol of the divine light. And Israelites ever since that time in Exodus for the, ne- the next several thousand years have still considered that very sacred to them. And, and it speaks to them about God and his provision of light and how he is their guiding light. He is their divine light. So that symbol was very relevant as Jesus spoke these words about how he is the light of the world. Surely in the presence of the menorah, the one thing that the Israelites understood to be the symbol of God and light. But then let's, let's back out a little bit further. Let's we'll zoom out a little bit further to the immediate cultural context as well. So he says these words in the temple. He says these in the treasury, right, maybe even near the base of the menorah. But also he says them on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. What that was, was a festival of commemoration. It was to commemorate the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness several thousand, like 2,000 years prior to Jesus. And so what had just taken place throughout the whole city, throughout Jerusalem, was that people had constructed tents that they lived in during the course of that week, during the course of that festival, to remember and to celebrate the way that God led his people through the wilderness and how they all dwelled in these tents, these tabernacles. God himself even was amidst his people in that tabernacle that we know and we remember from that from that account. Additionally, people would light torches, they would have. Candles, menorahs, they would have uh, lamps and lanterns lit throughout the entire city. Why? Because it symbolized the way that God was present with them during that time of wandering. You see, what God did, you remember, that he was present with them as a cloud at day, but during the night, he manifested his presence in a pillar of fire. Again, a symbol of the divine light that they commemorated throughout the, the time of that festival and that feast. And so all of these pictures are coming front and center to the minds of these first century Jews as they listen to and they hear Jesus talk about him being the light of the world. Do you see how they may have been connecting the dots and how they may have been understanding and perceiving exactly what he was intending for them to understand. You see, God has revealed himself in light in numerous ways. He's actually the author and the creator of light. The first account in Genesis chapter 1, the very first quotations, is God saying, let there be light. From the very words that he speaks, light comes into existence. He creates daylight. He creates sun, and the moon, and the stars. Additionally, almost every encounter that man has with God, there is some aspect of light. There's this glory. You see the burning bush. You see the pillar of fire. You see the Shekinah glory that's talked about in Ezekiel, the other prophets. Even from a New Testament perspective, you think about Saul on the road to Damascus and how Jesus Christ as this glorious light shone and it took him down to his knees and Something like scales were over his eyes. It blinded him. It was so brilliant. It was so intense. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.16, he says that the Lord dwells in light unapproachable. His light is so brilliant and so beyond us. 1 John 1.5 says that the Lord is light. In him there is no darkness. That being said, even from an Old Testament perspective, we look at Psalm 27, one. The Jewish hearers were, they were perceiving exactly what Jesus was trying to say. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? When Christ says, I am the light, they got it. He is saying, I am deity. I am God himself. Come to be with you to be in your presence. Jesus certainly wasn't saying that he was just simply an enlightened one trying to show us the way to God. Jesus was saying, I am God and I am the light. He who walks, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees immediately confront him with questions and antagonism and conflict about, this. He, they say, your testimony is not true. You testify about yourself. You have no witness to your testimony. Of course, we appreciate the fact that we require witnesses. We require witnesses in our court of law, but the Pharisees also were drawing on their Old Testament law in that it required the witness, it required witnesses to be able to convict someone of, of, uh, of breaking the law. So they were doing the same with Jesus. They were trying to say, no, your your testimony is invalidated because you're testifying about yourself and there's no one else here to testify that you are actually accurate in your assessment of yourself. Well, interestingly enough, John had told us about this very thing, about how Jesus did have a witness. It was John the Baptist. He, John the Baptizer, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. See, God had bared, uh, had borne witness about himself. He had borne witness about his son. He had sent John in ahead of him, ahead of Jesus, to be able to prepare the hearts of those who would listen, to prepare them to understand and to know who is the light, the true light that comes into our world to show us God, because he himself is God. Interesting thing about light is that, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have our sun, right? And I'm going to speak specifically about the sun for just a couple of minutes. We need the sun to survive, right? We, imagine not having sunlight for an extended period of time, we're talking weeks, months, years. Imagine that nuclear winter scenario uh, where the sun is blotted out and we, there's no sunlight for this extended period of time. What would that do to our ecosystem? Imagine what that would do to plant life. I mean, w- plants need the sunlight for photosynthesis in order for them to survive. We need plants for our own survival because we depend on them for oxygen. We depend on them for Food, fruit, vegetables, other resources, building materials, all these things. Imagine life on this planet if all the plant life were to die out because it had no sun. We need the sun for our very survival. We also need the sun for our own health, right? If we go out in the sun, what happens when the sun hits our skin? We start to process vitamin D, which vitamin D is critical for our own immunity, In our other systems, our circulatory system, our skeletal structure, all these other things. And so we need sunlight ourselves. We also think about how sunlight affects us in our our emotional well-being, our, uh, you know, just being able to have just a sense of upbeat happiness, right? When we go without sun for an extended period of time, it starts to affect us emotionally. Have you guys ever been to Alaska during the winter? Keith Robertson First Service has, um, I can't imagine what that would be like to, to only see like just a little sliver of the sun every 20 hours or so. Uh, I, I've read books about people who have overwintered in Antarctica, and it just drives them crazy because they don't see any sunlight for almost six months out of the whole winter. That would just go, make me go crazy. So we need the sun in all these various ways for our survival, for our health, for our emotional well-being. But flip it on its, on its back. Think about what about the sun that we, we cannot survive also with too much sun. Think about, I think about, I grew up on a ranch uh, up in North Texas and I was out in the sun all the time throughout my childhood. I was out in the sun baling hay throughout summers, especially in junior high, high school and college. Uh, Dad was like, got to raise money for tuition. So I had to be out in the sun and I very rarely put on sunscreen, nor did I wear sleeves. And I think about the cumulative effect of all that radiation from the sun on my skin. Hope it, I pray that it does not come back to bite me later in life. I think also about, You know what? What would happen if you were in the space station, or hello, or uh, uh, if you were in uh, in orbit and you walked, did a little space walk, and you went out and uh, you didn't have the protection of your spacesuit on, and you went out from the the shade of the spaceship and into the sun's glorious light, and all of a sudden, what would happen? You wouldn't last for more than a second. Because the light of that sun, the radiation, would just incinerate you. Well, our bodies were not designed or equipped to be able to handle the sun in its full, white-hot heat. But at the same time, we can't live without the sun. So we need the sun for our survival, yet we can't live with the sun in its fullness. It's like we need this atmosphere or something in order to mediate the sun's rays, The atmosphere itself allows for us to enjoy the benefits of the sun without being harmed by or, or destroyed by the sun. Think about this in terms of the way that we experience God. Think about the fact that we cannot survive, we would not exist without God. Yet on the same hand... Remember the way that Moses interacted with God on Mount Sinai and how Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no, no, no. No man can look at me and survive. It's just too intense. Our bodies are not equipped to be able to handle the full white hot glory of the Lord. And so that being said, we need a mediator. We need this atmosphere, if you will, and that's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to be the mediator between us and God, to be able to show us God. Jesus, as John tells us, was God who took on flesh. He was the Word made flesh. And He came and He dwelt amongst us that He might show us not just the way to God, but God Himself. Jesus was the exact nature and the exact representation of God, and that. He was God. He was the light that we might not walk in darkness, but that we might have the light of life in knowing Jesus Christ. I think about the fact that God is light. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, yet he also calls us to be light. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's ridiculous to think about putting a light there that you're just simply going to cover. What's its purpose? It has no effectiveness anymore. If it's If it's hidden away, we place lights where we need light, where we can dispel the darkness. So it is for us. God is light. Jesus is the light. He's calling us to be lights in our world. And I realize that for many of us, we live and we work and operate in a very dark environment, very dark workplace. Maybe even in your family circumstances, your family context, There's a lot of people that do not know Jesus and there's a lot of darkness in their hearts. I was having dinner with uh, some Aggies in Houston last weekend for our Grace alumni networking dinner in Houston. Enjoying getting to know some of the couples that had been recent grads. They also have been recently married and they're now in the workforce in Houston at various different jobs throughout the Metroplex. And and, uh, their common thread was we are burdened for the people in our workplace. It is such a dark place because the people there do not know Jesus, nor do they really even want to know Jesus. And it really, you know, just, I felt that same burden for them as they are trying to be lights in their in their in their place of work. And we tried to pray for them and encourage them. But I want to say that you know we as Christians we tend to do a couple of different things, and when when it comes to being a light, what does that really look like? What does that mean? Oftentimes, we can take it one way, one one very extreme way, and we can be this spotlight kind of light, this this bright, intense, in your face light that is just wow, really strong and comes off probably really harsh and maybe even insensitive. It's just this blinding light. That's that. That's one kind of way of being a light. I wouldn't advocate that one. And then there's the other swing of the pendulum to this other form of light, and at least the way that we think that we're being a light, and that is to conti- to just completely abandon ship. And the truth of the matter is that unless it's, something the Spirit is leading you to to get away from or it's illegal in its nature, I want to challenge us. I want to encourage us to engage. Don't withdraw. Don't bail out. Don't, can I say it, don't boycott? I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that we need to stay engaged with our culture and be a light and speak into these things rather than just, whoa, I'm not going there. Certainly, we don't want to be this side of the the spectrum where we're just like blinding and hurtful and convicting. Let me just say that, you know, being a light is not so much about imposing our personal convictions, but about impressing people with the person of Christ. You see, I would say let's find this ground here where it's more like this warm glow of the candle certainly not so intense as a spotlight or a floodlight in somebody's face, but it's got this beauty that is attractive. It's winsome. It it draws people in. In fact, if you even want to utilize the candle as this um, illustration, you could say it lets off this sweet fragrance, aroma of Christ. That's what we're being called to be. That's what being a light really is, is to engage and to be there in that culture. Because after all, where is it that we put a light? We put a light where it's dark. A friend of mine, Matt Stewart, a good friend of mine that lives up in Dallas, he oftentimes rides the dart rail in his commute to work. He lives in Garland, he l- works in downtown Dallas. And so, on that particular line that he goes from Garland to downtown, and then, of course, back again in the evening, there's this segment of, of, uh, of train that is at the city place stop that, if you're familiar with the dart rail, you know that that part of the train, most of the tracks throughout Dallas are all above ground. But that particular section of track goes maybe two, three miles underground. Tunnel, much like subways all around the world. Well, one day when Matt was commuting home from work, they entered the tunnel and shortly after entering that tunnel, the train comes to a halt. In the tunnel, the train stops and what's worse is the lights of the train all went out. The air conditioner went out. The electrical systems all went out. The tunnel lights themselves all out. Everything was pitch black. <laughs> Terrifying, right? That, w- that, it was insane. And in, in we were actually, my wife and I were waiting for, for him to get home from work. We were at dinner uh, hoping to, f- to hear from him. He was in the tunnel where there was no cell service, but fortunately, he happened to have a flashlight in his backpack, which he was able to pull out and he was able to shine it up on the ceiling and it broadcasts light throughout the, the car of the train that he was in. Well, the operator of the train wasn't able to communicate through the intercom system because all the electrical systems were off. And so fortunately, one of the, uh, one of the, the dart rail People that's that's in there. One of the the I guess officer or whatever. They started kind of making their way from train to train, from I I should say car to car, throughout the train, in order to tell people, hey, it's okay. We're 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 getting things addressed. We're gonna hopefully have everything back online very shortly. Well, people started getting a little antsy because I mean it's hot in there. It's crowded because everybody's on their commute home from work. It's rush hour, and as a result, they start to sit there for 20 minutes. 25 minutes finally at about 30 minutes people people's basic human instincts started to take over they're sitting in the dark they're sitting in this train that's hot and stuffy and they're and they're in this tunnel it's scary and they don't know what's going on they don't know what's happening next or they don't know how long this is going to take finally people started pushing each other out of the way getting hostile getting violent making their way to the to the to the, the, uh, the train doors and so- finally several people broke the doors open and burst out and there was this mass exodus of people going out onto the adjacent, uh, adjacent tracks and making their way down about 100 yards to the nearest platform using their cell phone lights and all these kinds of things to, to finally exit the, uh, the tunnel. That's about three stories underground. So there's a lot of stairs and everything. So you can imagine the terror You can imagine the the frustration and just what it was like to be in the dark for so long, not knowing what's going on. Not only are they physically in the dark, but they're also mentally in the dark. But if that, that train had stopped just a few miles on either side of that tunnel, it would have stopped in the middle of the evening daylight. And there would have been plenty of daylight for them to be able to know their surroundings, to know what's going on. There would not have been any need for lights in the train. So it is with us. We need to recognize that God's calling us to be lights in this world. So oftentimes it's so easy to go where it's comfortable, where all the other lights are. But that's not what we need to do. That's not what God is calling us to do. That's not where the lights are needed. We need to be the lights In the world where it's dark. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. A couple of things that I want to make mention about this. First of all, that nothing has changed. The world is sinful. It is full of brokenness and we are still living in a crooked and twisted generation. It is dark out there, but that's why we need to be the light. He continues to, to note that we will shine as lights. You, you know, your light doesn't have to be intense or dramatic or overpowering to shine against the darkness of the backdrop that is our generation. The reality of this candle, this the, the warm glow of Christ's light shining through us is, is really what God is calling us to be. And lastly, he says, holding fast to the word of life. I want to make mention of the fact that how is it that your lights in your house operate? All of them are connected to the electrical grid, right? Or Or a lamp that you might have that's connected to an outlet in your house. You would never anticipate, you would never expect... For that light to turn on, if you're holding the plug in your hand, it's, it's not going to operate. It's not going to function. Every light has to be powered by a source. And just like last week as we looked at the vine, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, so it is with us that we need to be connected to our power source. We need to be abiding with Christ, holding fast to the word of life. As it were, we need to be filled up, fueled up, energized by Christ Himself. That means we need to be intentional about our time with Him. This morning I have a visual illustration for each of you guys to take home with you. And what they are, is they are little glow in the dark stars. You guys have all seen them. They're fun to put on your child's ceiling so that they can look at the stars at night and they glow and they're. It's so pretty and so great. But uh, the reality of those glow-in-the-dark stars, we all know, is that they don't last forever. They glow for for a, a while, but then they fade, right? But they need recharged by the light source, right? They have to have light that they might glow. And then, of course, they begin to fade again over the course of the night. Well, consider the parallel that Moses had. Remember when he came down from his encounter with On Mount Sinai with the Lord, what was going on with his face at that time? Do you remember how it glowed? It had this radiance. It was remarkable. And even the people were fearful over there like, whoa, Moses, your face, it's totally wigging me out. You got to put a veil over it. And that's what he did. Put a veil over his face in order to really, uh, in a sense, protect the people. From being able to see this crazy glow, this that's radiating from him, but over time, as Paul tells us, the fa- the, the glory of the Lord's uh, radi- that radiant face began to fade over time, and he then got then Moses would go in to be with God in the tent of meeting, and he would remove the veil, and as a result, that time spent with God, he would get recharged, as it were much like these glow-in-the-dark stars. So what I want to encourage you to do is take that glow-in-the-dark star home. You could tape it somewhere that you'll remember. Put it in your pocket each day, maybe. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and yet he also is calling us to shine for him. The only way that we are going to effectively shine his light is when we are in his presence continuously, consistently, faithfully, energizing our spirits, energizing ourselves that we might be able to shine for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to experience you, experience your light. And we're grateful for the ways that you have painted uh, illustrations in in our world of light and darkness and the way that you always overcome. We're grateful for your consistency, your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that we would draw near to you. We would be energized by you. We'd be fueled up by you so that we can shine in the dark places effectively for your sake, for your glory. We thank you so much for this, uh, for this morning, the opportunity to be in your word. We pray that it would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be participating in communion together. And then after that, we're going to, we're going to sing one last song in closing. But uh, as the men go ahead and come forward and prepare to distribute the elements, I wanted to take advantage of the fact that we've been in the book of John over the past few weeks. And John, in his narrative, in his gospel of the life of Jesus, does something interesting with the uh, the. Last Supper, I'm sorry, I should say the Passover aspects. Three times John records the Passover occurring during Jesus' public ministry. Three times. And each one of those is significant, kind of builds into something cumulative. The first time that we see Jesus, he, uh, in his public ministry, is at the wedding in Cana. And it's in association with the Passover feast. The wedding, you guys may remember from John chapter 2, is where Jesus took the water and he transformed it into wine. Well, then the next time that we see the Passover was in John chapter 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000 people from the bread. And he called himself the bread of life. So we have wine, John chapter 2. We have bread, John chapter 6. And then... The last time that John records a Passover meal, a Passover event, was when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And we know from the other accounts, from the Gospels and the other accounts of Scripture, that that was the place in which Jesus transformed the Passover, take the meaning from the Passover to identify the the bread as his body, the cup, the wine as his blood, So as we pass out the elements, I invite you to consider the body, the blood, and now this this meal that Jesus is inviting his disciples into. In fact, he's inviting all of us into that that we would partake of his body. We partake of his blood in remembrance of him. The Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Let's pray. Lord, we're blessed to get to participate in the remembrance of you. We know that you shed your blood for us. Your body was broken for us in our place. For that, we are so grateful. Lord, may we be witnesses of your light. We may be witnesses to your light and that we may share that light with others. Testify. You are the, you alone, the light of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing together.